0: This is Clinical Pearls. Pregnant women have a variety of adversarial issues that they have to negotiate in order to have a successful pregnancy outcome. Some of those factors are not modifiable, like a patient's age or race. But some factors are modifiable. Chief of the modifiable factors is the patient's weight obesity increases the risk of various problems during pregnancy. For example, obese women have an increased risk of pregnancy loss compared with women of normal weight. Babies born to obese women also have an increased risk of having certain birth defects, specifically congenital cardiac defects and neural tube defects. And of course, obese women have an increased risk of both medically necessary and spontaneous preterm birth. In this podcast, however, we're going to focus on the link between obesity and stillbirth. Is this link real? And if it is, what can we do about it? Well, let's get to that now. Obesity is one of the most frequent modifiable risk factors for stillbirth in high-resource regions with a linearly increased risk of stillbirth with rising maternal BMI. These risks persist even in the absence of other chronic diseases. The prevalence of obesity in women of reproductive age is increasing in most countries, and of course, including the U.S., where more than 30% of women of reproductive age are obese and over 50% are overweight or obese. Despite the high U.S. prevalence of pre-pregnancy obesity and the myriad of complications associated with the condition, a uniform standard of care regarding delivery timing and method does not exist specifically for the obese gravid patient. Now, published data have shown that increasing obesity class is associated with an increased risk of stillbirth. Risks for a 10 unit increase in BMI, which corresponds approximately to the difference in BMI between a normal weight and a moderately obese woman, tends to increase the risk of stillbirth by 1.5 to twofold. Okay, we have to clarify this a little bit more. The risk of stillbirth is not just related to the actual patient BMI, but also is directly related to the gestational age. The risk of stillbirth that is associated with obesity increases not just with the BMI itself, but with the advancing gestation. Using a Danish birth cohort of over 54,000 women, Nor et al. reported a hazard ratio for stillbirth at around 20 to 27 weeks of 1.9 for women with a BMI of 30 compared with women with normal BMI. Remember, a normal BMI is anywhere from 18.5 to 24.9. Now the hazard ratio for stillbirth at 28 to 36 weeks was 2.1 and at 37 to 40 weeks it was 3.5 and at 41 weeks of gestation it was 4.6. So the take home from this is that the risk of stillbirth is directly related to the amount of obesity but also directly related to the gestational age. Alright, well, as an important question is, how about an induction of labor? Obviously, if the hazard ratio at 41 weeks is 4.6 compared to normal weight women, then shouldn't we do an induction of labor before that? Well, let's take a look at that next. Regarding induction, important questions remain in the appropriate treatment of obese women in pregnancy to reduce the risk of stillbirth. In terms of determining the optimal gestational age for delivery, it's clear that the risk of stillbirth between each obesity class is different, so the timing of delivery may be different. The available evidence does not actually delineate these differences adequately to direct specific treatment guidelines for each obesity class at this time, but we do have some data to guide us. Now, nonetheless, the few studies that have been performed to evaluate elective induction of labor in the obese population has shown some conflicting results. Let's take a look at this. Now, it is unclear how the more recent data on elective induction at 39 weeks, remember that's the ARRIVE trial, may be applied here. Indeed, published data like the Gibbs Pickens January 2018 Green Journal publication actually concluded that among women who are obese, elective labor after 39 weeks of gestation was in fact associated with reduced maternal and neonatal morbidity. This was a retrospective cohort that included over 165,000 singleton, cephalic, non-anomalous deliveries to women who were obese. Now, for each gestational week, researchers used multivariable logistic regression to assess whether elective induction of labor or expectant management was associated with lower odds of cesarean delivery and other adverse outcomes. The authors stated that even though they did see a reduction in maternal and neonatal morbidity, they admit that additional research using larger sample sizes of these morbidly obese patients can help determine whether a uniform policy on elective term induction is appropriate for all obese women. In addition, they state, quote, future studies should consider utilizing a randomized controlled trial in order to reduce the potential of unobserved confounding. Well, that paper does not stand alone. Similarly, in 2018, the American Journal of OBGYN released a published study on the same lines. The authors performed a retrospective cohort study from the Consortium on Safe Labor, comparing obese women with a single gestation who underwent elective induction at 39 weeks compared to expectant management. Now, their outcomes of interest included C-section rate and adverse maternal and neonatal outcomes. Now, what they found was that those who had elective induction actually had decreased rates of morbidity. They found that when compared between the groups of elective induction and expected management during the gestational timeframes of 39, 40, and 41 weeks, they actually found decreased rates of complications. Their statistical methods included univariable and multivariable analysis. Once again, they found that women undergoing induction of labor differed in several ways from the expected management group. They were more likely to be older, they're more likely to be Caucasian and married, and had more favorable, simplified bishop scores. When reviewing the primary outcome, both nulliparous and multipares women undergoing induction of labor were less likely to have a C-section. Macrosomia was also noted to be reduced in both nulliparous and multipares women who underwent induction of labor At 39 weeks. So the authors concluded that in obese women, an elective induction of labor when compared to expectant management was indeed associated with decreased cesarean and improved maternal and neonatal outcomes in the obese population. Now they ended with saying that further prospective studies still need to be performed to confirm those results. Alright guys, but as is always the case, hang on, because it may not be that easy. Data has consistently shown that elective induction of labor in the obese patient is not always so smooth. So let's take a look at that next let's review what we just covered. According to some data, induction of labor at 39 weeks in the obese female population tends to have successful outcomes. But as we said, it's not always that easy. Obesity has well-documented intrapartum issues, aside from the medical comorbidities that often occur like hypertension and diabetes. Obesity is associated with a delay in the onset of spontaneous labor and so an increase in the interventions of labor induction and C-section in other published data. Maternal obesity, although not a reason to avoid induction and go straight to C-section, is a risk factor for lengthy and prolonged inductions of labor. Obesity is a known risk factor for failed induction of labor as well, and undergoing an induction of labor in other studies has been linked to a higher risk of emergency cesarean section. Obese women should be consulted about these results antenatally. So, this data has been shown over a variety of study designs and populations. Now, among the most recent data set based on results of a retrospective cohort study, the same conclusions were presented at a 2018 World Congress of the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Now, in this report, they hypothesized that obese women had this prolonged long to labor course especially with an induction because of some unknown yet defined myometrial dysfunction that may affect cervical dilation and their bishop score. Now studies are actually underway right now to help explain this hypothesis and some of these studies are coming out of Australia. Now, stillbirth is most prevalent in low-resource regions of the world, but it's also a public health problem in high-resource regions like the U.S., and we know for sure that there's a link between stillbirth and obesity. Now, during the past decades, the incidence of stillbirth has declined slowly in most high-resource countries, with an average rate of about 3 to 5 per thousand births. However, during the same time period, the incidence of neonatal mortality has continuously declined faster, and consequently, the proportion of perinatal deaths due to stillbirth has increased. Let's pause here and review some of these important terms. Again, let's review what we just stated. During the same time period, the incidence of neonatal mortality has continuously declined faster than the rate of stillbirth. So the proportion of perinatal deaths due to stillbirth has increased. And we have to define these terms so we're all on the same page. Remember that infant mortality is any infant death up to the 1st, First year of life—that's 365 days after birth. Neonatal death is a type of infant death occurring within the first 28 days of the infant's life. Neonatal death is further subclassified into early neonatal death, which is death occurring within the first seven days of life, and late neonatal death, which is death from day of life seven to 28. Now, from day 28. To the first year, it is called a postnatal death. Yet, all make up this larger category of infant mortality. All right, podcast family, let's put this in perspective. Remember, we're talking about obesity and its link to stillbirth, and we've been discussing whether induction of labor is helpful or not, with some studies saying yes, an induction of labor should occur at 39 weeks, but other studies saying no, it just gives them a prolonged labor course and increases risk for emergency C-section. So what are you going to do? Well, besides obesity, a number of risk factors for stillbirth have obviously also been identified, and these include previous stillbirth, higher maternal age, smoking, nulliparous women, and medical conditions like diabetes, preeclampsia, PIH, essential hypertension, systemic lupus erythematosus, and the antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. Now, the mechanisms behind the increased risk of stillbirth in pregnancies of overweight or obese women are just not clear. However, placental inflammation and dysfunction as well as metabolic and hormonal changes that come with obesity have been suggested to increase the risk of stillbirth. Maternal hyperglycemia in pregnancies complicated by pregestational or severe gestational diabetes obviously increase the risk of stillbirth. Maternal hyperglycemia may lead to fetal hyperinsulinemia and increased demand for oxygen. Now, in case of impaired placental function, this mechanism might contribute to increased risk of fetal hypoxia and death. That's why some advocate the routine use of umbilical artery dopplers as, quote, surveillance in the obese population, but remember that ACOG does not endorse that practice. Remember, the ACOG considers umbilical arterial dopplers only useful or most clinically applicable in the growth-restricted infant. Now, in cases of impaired placental function, the mechanism of stillbirth in the obese patient may contribute to increased risk of fetal hypoxia and death, but the question is, how do we screen for this? Well, we really don't have one, especially since we just covered the issue of umbilical arterial doppler. So, one can speculate that elevated maternal glucose levels although they can be even in the normal range, in other words, below the threshold of diabetes, but that even the slight increase in maternal glucose levels that are chronically elevated may have a negative impact on fetal metabolism and oxygen supply. Remember, this is just a theory trying to explain the increased risk of stillbirth in the obese population. All right, now we have to get into this a little bit more because the ACOG 2018 practice bulletin on gestational diabetes gets a little confusing. For example, according to the college, quote, studies have not specifically demonstrated an increase in stillbirth with well-controlled A1 gestational diabetes before 40 weeks. So, according to the college, antepartum fetal testing is not necessary in these women. But hang in there because this is going to get a little bit more complicated. The college goes on to say that there is no consensus regarding antepartum fetal testing among women with well-controlled GDM who are not medically treated, in other words, A1 diabetics. Now, if antepartum testing is to be used in these patients, according to the college, it is generally started later than in women with A2 diabetes. The specific antipartum test and frequency of testing may be chosen according to local practice, according to the college. However, because polyhydramnios can result from fetal hyperglycemia, it's a good idea and common practice to use a test that incorporates some sort of amniotic fluid determination. Now remember, we just said that the college has made it clear that well-controlled gestational diabetics that are A1, in other words, diet-controlled, do not have an increased risk of stillbirth. But there are critics of that statement. Critics of this view state that the effect of GDM may be compounded specifically for this risk of stillbirth when the patient is obese, and those critics make the statement that ACOG makes no specific subclassification or further description of the risk of GDM in the obese patient. Alright, so confused yet? Yeah, because it's kind of confusing. So here's what we know. Obesity is definitely linked to stillbirth, and it gets worse with the worse obesity the patient has. And the risk of stillbirth is also increased based on gestational age. Remember, we talked about that earlier in the podcast. But this whole issue of hyperglycemia is kind of confusing because well-controlled gestational diabetics do not seem to have an increased risk of stillbirth overall. But, as we just stated, it may be a confounding factor in patients that are obese who already have a higher-than-normal risk of stillbirth. Now, ACOG does continue to state in that practice bulletin that, quote, Expert opinion has supported earlier delivery for women with poorly controlled gestational diabetes, but clear guidance about the degree of glycemic control that requires earlier delivery is just lacking, and the recommendation about timing of delivery lacks specific guidance as well. So, the college says, in light of this, consideration of timing should incorporate trade-offs between prematurity and the ongoing risk of stillbirth. So, there it is. Now, in such a setting, delivery between 37 weeks and 38 weeks and 6 days may be justified, but delivery in the late preterm period, in other words, between 34 and 36 weeks and 6 days, should be reserved only for women who fail in hospital attempts to improve glycemic control or who have abnormal antepartum fetal testing. All right, podcast family, let's wrap this up. So what do we know without a doubt? Well, we know that obesity is a significant risk for adverse pregnancy outcomes, and that has to do with both antepartum and intrapartum issues. Obesity is directly related to the risk of stillbirth, and that risk of stillbirth gets higher based on the degree of obesity. Plus, we also know that that risk of stillbirth in the obese population is also compounded by the gestational age, with a higher risk of stillbirth happening the further along in pregnancy the patient goes. Now, what is less clear is the ideal management, with some studies advocating routine induction of labor at 39 weeks in the obese population, while others say that induction of labor can lead to a protracted interpartum course and increase the risk of emergency C-section. So, what are you going to do? Well, it's case by case. Now, although the true mechanism of stillbirth in the obese patient is not fully elucidated, it is reasonable to consider some type of antepartum testing in the obese patient. The question is when to begin. Personally, and by consensus opinion, it seems reasonable to begin antepartum fetal testing anywhere from 36 weeks of gestation onward, but the actual test and the frequency are not yet determined. Well, we've covered the link between obesity and stillbirth. Thanks for being a part of Clinical Pearls, and we'll see you next time on our next podcast.